0: Probably the most important aspects are to understand what the constitution of the company or the replaceable rules, what powers they grant to the directors or to the company, uh, getting your documentation right, and understanding that journal entries aren't payment. We need to have something more. All, all journal entries do is record a transaction. I think if you can get those three things right, you can make the payment of a dividend from a company uh, effective. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast
1: to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 262 of Tax Talks. This is Hyda Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Over the last two episodes, we looked at Division 7a dividends and the issue of timing in general and Section 109 in particular. So these are specific issues around declaring and booking a dividend. But in this episode, let's look at the general rules around declaring a dividend. Let's go through the five steps it takes to declare a dividend. Here's Paul McEnross of Cleary Hall in Brisbane with more.
0: There's a number of, uh, I guess, a number of steps that need to be taken by company directors in order to determine the payment of a dividend. I kind of always start at the constitution. So what does the constitution of the company say? If there is a constitution, otherwise we might look at the Corporations Act for the replaceable rules, and that's really a good place to start um, because that will tell us how the company can declare a dividend, whether that is by the directors declaring a dividend or in some of the older constitutions, uh, the company in general meeting was the party to actually declare a dividend. Uh, so it's important, I think, to start at the constitution, have a read of that and and understand the process.
1: How are the replaceable rules different to the average constitution when it comes to the declaring of dividends?
0: Sure, so there's a replaceable rule in section 254, capital U, uh, which allows the directors to determine the amount of a dividend and they can obviously fix the uh, amount of the dividend, the time for payment and the method of payment. So there is a replaceable rule there that allows the directors to do it. Uh, Obviously, if you have a constitution that pushes aside the replaceable rules, you would need to read uh, the constitution to determine the power.
1: If you only have replaceable rules, and of course, you only have one or the other, you can't have replaceable rules and a constitution, although you could because a constitution could might not cover a certain area, and then, of course, the replaceable rules come in again as a default, correct? Yes. You could actually have both. You could have replaceable rules for some areas and a constitution for other areas if your constitution has gaps.
0: In theory, that's right. Most constitutions, however,
1: are fairly comprehensive. We'll, yeah,
0: we'll we'll say the replaceable rules don't apply.
1: But now if we only have replaceable rules, then only the directors can declare a dividend, not the shareholders, correct?
0: Yes, that's right.
1: And then the constitution can override that and can give the power of declaring a dividend to the shareholders or vested in the directors, whatever they decide to do, correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. And and like I said, a lot of the older constitutions had that power vested in the shareholders, um, whereas more modern times we've we've vested that power in the directors.
1: So the first step is read the deed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no difference here between a trust deed and uh, and a constitution. Effectively, both are the rules of your structure. So you need to understand what the rules say about whatever power you're you're seeking to uh, utilize. Uh, so read read the constitution and understand how to do it. The next step then is obviously determining, are we able to pay a dividend? And the Corporations Act has Section 245, Capital T, uh, which outlines the the test to be applied as to whether a company can pay a dividend. And what what that section deals with, it says that a company must not pay a dividend unless its assets exceed its liabilities before the dividend is declared, and the excess is enough to allow for the payment of that dividend. The next step is that the payment of the dividend must be fair and reasonable to the company's shareholders as a whole, and the payment of the dividend mustn't materially prejudice the company's ability to pay its creditors. That's a three-pronged test in the Corporations Act. Now, that, that section is a relatively new section, and it replaced I guess the older view that a dividend can only be paid from profits of the company. Now, many commentators argue that both tests now still apply. And I I think that that obviously is true, but uh, where the wording of that comes from to me is from the actual tax act. So when you look at the tax act, it says a dividend is paid uh, or is a distribution from profits of the company. So, Even though we have a new test in section 245T, we still have to ensure that we're tracing our dividend from profits of the company. The five tests are the first one being the constitution test. What are the rules? Can we meet those rules? The next one is the net asset test. Uh, So does it have sufficient net assets to pay the dividend? The next test is the fairness test. Is it fair and reasonable to pay a dividend? And is it fair to the shareholders as as a whole? The next test is the prejudice test. Would would this dividend payment prejudice the payment uh, of uh, creditors? And finally, the profit test. Are we paying a dividend from profits rather than say for example share capital can we can we source our dividend uh, from profits of the company
1: and i think it's interesting that you put the constitution test at the start when i read about it very often the constitution test was at the end but you put it at the start and i think it makes sense to first start with your own housekeeping and then to look at the other criteria that I set by law?
0: I tend to put the the constitution test first because it's the one that's overlooked more often than not. Often people won't read the constitution and you'll, you'll have a, a set of minutes come through and you'll be reading it for whatever reason. It might be an audit and you'll read whether it be minutes of a company or trustee resolutions and they have no correlation to the rules of, of the company or the trust. And, you know, it's often well, we thought we could pay a dividend from the company. We thought a director's resolution would be enough. And you read the constitution and, well, members should be involved in that process according to the constitution. So I always put it first, probably the you know net asset or, or those other four tests are more prevalent because people uh, understand whether they've got enough money in the bank to pay a dividend. So that's why those tests probably come first in, in most assessments.
1: But if we just have the replaceable rules, if we don't have a constitution, then we know that the replaceable rules say the directors declare the dividend, so then we just have to... And does the replaceable rules say when there are more than one director that it is enough that one director declares it, or do the replaceable rules say that all directors must have a meeting where they decide, I assume with majority, that a dividend is to be declared.
0: Correct. It'll be by majority. It, it, so the section says the directors. So where there is more than one, there needs to be a resolution of the directors and companies are, are generally directed by majority rule of the directors of the company.
1: Yes. And votes, if we just have replaceable routes, how does the voting work? Does Every director, I assume every director has the same weight of votes, correct? Has the same number of votes?
0: Yes, that's right. And small and medium enterprises, you know, the directors will often be on the same page. They may not even hold a meeting, and there are rules around ha- how you can have a resolution without a meeting. Yeah, um, and it,
1: it's a, called the cir- circulus resolution, isn't it? Yes,
0: yeah, circulating resolution. Yeah. Uh, so essentially, in that Circulating resolution, everyone needs to agree, not just a majority. So uh, if there's some contention amongst the directors as to whether the company is to pay a dividend, well, they, they will need to have a meeting and follow those formal processes of meeting notices and holding a physical meeting and having an actual vote. If everyone is on the same page, then it it can be done by circulating a resolution where everyone signs a document uh, (laughs) stating they're in favour of it.
1: And if the company just has replaceable rules, then every director just has one vote and it's the majority? Yes. And what happens if the directors, if you have four directors and they can't decide?
0: If it's two apiece, it it doesn't happen.
1: Uh, Okay with the replaceable rules every director just has one vote but if you have a constitution it is possible to give some directors more votes than others so for example you could link the voting power to the number of shares they hold
0: yes so you can have other um yeah other mechanisms to to have weighting of votes um you would have to make changes to your constitution to get to that position but that is possible Uh, Most constitutions provide an equal vote and the chairman of the meeting uh, wouldn't ordinarily have a casting vote, for example, but those things could be changed by shareholder agreement. So that was the first step. The next step is uh, to determine the payment terms for the dividend. And Section uh, 254U is one of those replaceable rules uh, that we talked about, and it says uh, that the directors may determine the method of payment and the payment terms, the date for payment, for example, and constitutions uh, of companies will say very similar uh, things to the replaceable rules Uh, So the directors in their resolution would declare the dividend and generally set the payment terms. That might be left open to perhaps the secretary to determine, but often it will be determined by the directors as to when a payment would be made.
1: And what's this distinction between determined to be paid and actually declared? Do most companies determine to pay or actually declare dividends?
0: Generally the way I would write a dividend resolution would be that the company declares a dividend.
1: That basically means that the dividend is declared and becomes due on the day of the meeting, I assume.
0: So uh, there's a, a section in the Corporations Act which talks about when a dividend becomes a debt of the company. And what that section says is that it becomes a debt of the company when the date for payment arrives. So you may set... A date for payment as, say, 30 June 2021, and when that date arrives, that is when it becomes a debt of the company. Uh, now, the co- constitution of the company may have different rules, so that's why it's always important to understand what your constitution Uh, mandates in that regard so
1: when you declare dividend you set the amount you set the franking credits and you set the date the whole thing is paid whereas when you determine a dividend to be paid you basically leave it open you just say we want to pay a dividend but then the um, company secretary will determine the amount the date correct or what is this determined to be paid about what does that look like
0: perhaps it's best described as giving the directors some wiggle room to to I guess back pull away out. from paying a dividend if they uh, if they chose to. Obviously, if a, if a dividend is declared and a, and a date for payment is set, then it's a, it's harder to pull out of that uh, that arrangement. Uh, although it, it, it can be, but using those words determined to pay. Well, th- there is uh, the ability to withdraw from that mm-hmm. that amount. Generally, in my experience dealing with small and medium enterprises uh if they've decided to pay a dividend and i'm assisting with resolutions we simply declare the dividend
1: i read somewhere that it's actually more common nowadays to have a dividend just to be determined to be paid but your experience is that for small to medium enterprises it's usually just declared why bother with all this backwards and forwards just get yeah. get the thing across the line
0: yeah i think that's right and and. If we're involved, generally, they've made the decision. You know, the decision to pay a dividend has already been made and the money is ready to go generally. Or it might be done for an asset protection reason. There might be uh, sufficient retained earnings in a company and we are looking to move those to another company. And, you know, the decision to pay a dividend has been has already been made. You might find perhaps in larger enterprises where, particularly I guess in the, in the new COVID world, if you determined to pay rather than actually declared, well, that might that might have been a, a sensible option. If you had have determined to pay, say, an interim dividend earlier, and and a, an event like COVID occurred, uh, you might uh, decide as as a company to not pay that dividend.
1: Thinking of division 7A, for division 7A you need to have the dividend paid by the 30th of June if you want to receive if you want to use the dividend for minimum yearly repayments. So with division 7A this determined to be paid can really backfire if you then don't finalize things before the 30th of June and yeah. finalize paperwork for it to be finished.
0: That's right. And yes, it does need to be paid prior to 30 June because obviously there needs to be money paid back to the company from the trust I presume you're talking about where there's an unpaid entitlement uh, to a private company which is put on a division 7a loan or even a, a division 7a loan perhaps to the the shareholders or directors who who are related to the shareholders so in that in that case yes a dividend needs to be to be declared and paid prior to 30 June to allow for that repayment to occur
1: For Division 7a, we need payment before the 30th of June. But otherwise, putting Division 7a aside, we don't need payment before the 30th of June. Dividend can be declared on 30th of June, but actually be paid out on the 2nd or 3rd of July. And I think there's a large... ASX listed company I think it's Telstra or one of the banks or so they always declare the dividend just before June and then pay it just after in early July and I can imagine it it causes a lot of confusion when to recognize the dividend in the tax return and the rule is always you recognize the dividend on the date of payment correct you don't recognize it as income on the date it is declared, but on the date of payment, correct?
0: Yes. Look, there's a large body of law about uh, when pay- when a dividend is paid, using that, that phrase from the, the tax legislation. And payment does include crediting, but there's been no end of cases litigated on what is a proper crediting for the purposes of determining when a dividend is paid, And frankly, for small and medium enterprises, they don't want to get into that sort of dispute. So uh, the answer is if you want the dividend to be declared in a particular year, it should be paid in that year, paid physically. If you want
1: the income from the dividend in a particular year, then pay it in that year.
0: That's right. Yep, absolutely. Um, It may be that uh, taking your Telstra example, Telstra have determined how a proper crediting occurs in their books and therefore uh, that dividend is technically paid in the earlier year you know from a technical perspective that that they've probably worked out how to record it in their books so that so that it is deemed to be paid in that in that earlier year even though the physical payment doesn't occur until after 30 June for most private business they don't want to get into that territory where they're having dispute about it so just pay the money so after you've determined whether you can pay a dividend uh, and what those payment terms might be, the next step is obviously the formal declaration, and that will be done uh, by documentation. Most small, medium enterprises will have their accountant prepare these up, and they'll often take the form of minutes of a meeting generally is probably uh, more the case than, than a director's resolution, for example, but either, either would work. So in that resolution, the directors uh, should use the words, declare a dividend to be paid. They'll include information about the payment terms, uh, the franking amount or percentage at least, and actually make the resolution and direct the secretary to, to arrange for payment of the dividend. In terms of the, the documents, uh, it is important to reference it back to the powers in the constitution Oftentimes, those things are overlooked. Uh, in my experience, generally, it's okay uh, if those things are not referenced. But best practice is to at least reference. Well, what are the powers of the of the directors to make to declare a dividend? Because that will tell you if there's some other rule in there that might catch you out. For example, um, that you have to put it to a meeting of members.
1: I assume you you put that into the director minutes or the director resolution that you say the company is incorporated in such and such state is, is subject to the replaceable rules or a constitution and the directors are empowered by section X of the constitution or section I assume two four five T or. Um, I better don't quote the section, or are entitled by the replaceable rules to declare a dividend. Would dividend. Is that what you would say?
0: Yeah, that's right. I, I would usually reference um, the power in the, in the constitution or the replaceable rules to pay a dividend. I then usually reference section 245T, which is at least three of uh, those five tests, so the net asset test, fairness test and prejudice test. So I would reference that and say, well, the the directors have uh, made an assessment under Section 245T and believe that the company has assets that exceeds its liabilities, even after paying the dividend. It's fair and reasonable to the shareholders as a whole, and the payment doesn't materially prejudice the company's ability to pay its creditors. Then finally, the actual uh, declaration of a dividend.
1: Would you... Say will declare or declares?
0: I say declares.
1: How detailed do you have to be in the minutes resolution and then also the later distribution statement? For example, do you have to list the franking credits? I assume that yes. Do you have to list the dividend per share? I assume that no.
0: I would say to your first question actually no. That um, I would usually write it in the form that the company declares a dividend of the total amount and often I will put the words fully franked or franked to a certain percentage if, if it's not fully franked, and that the dividend will be paid to the holders of whatever class of share. I think uh, it, it's it's not wrong to say that uh, we're paying $10 per share, per ordinary class share, fully franked, uh, but it's also not wrong to, to say that you're paying a million-dollar dividend to all of the shareholders who hold ordinary class shares. Uh, I think if you just make the language reasonable, everyone will understand what that dividend is actually declaring. We just need to make it non-ambiguous.
1: Do you think it's still safe enough to say fully franked? Because then the question arises, is it a base rate entity or or not? And that might not always be clear cut. Hence, do you think it's okay to just say fully franked?
0: I do, because you are Dividend distribution statement will record the franking amount in terms of um, a, a figure, and that will obviously be based on what type of uh, tax rate entity you are. If you wanted to explain it a little bit more, you could do it in the the notes to the re, the minute. So up in the, you know, you could explain, well, um, the company is a base rate entity, for example, and therefore able to frank at
1: 30 uh, percent yeah oh, okay good so the resolution can actually be more vague than the distribution statement so the resolution could just say hundred thousand dollar dividend to all ordinary shareholders fully franked but then the distribution statement would say dividend is hundred thousand franking credits is thirty thousand
0: correct
1: i mean it doesn't work in the mess sorry <laughs> dividend is
0: seventy no, yeah, i know what you're
1: saying at 30, 000, yes. but actually just very quickly paul when you declare the dividend, you actually declare it based on the net amount, correct? So you would just declare the 70,000 dividend and then have the 30,000 franking credits coming in, being listed in the distribution statement, correct? You, you declare the net amount, not the gross amount, of course.
0: I usually think about it, well, how much, how much cash are they wanting to pay as a dividend? I guess it's the. It would be the net amount because you would add on franking credits. Not not that they're cash per se, but um, the hundred thousand dividend would be the cash amount, and the and the franking credits would be, would be on top. On top. So the, obviously the the uh, distribution statement doesn't need to be done at the same time. It will be done uh, and should be issued when the dividend is paid. But obviously, it will be in more detail and specific to the shareholders. The reason I say that you can broadly put a overall figure is that if you have a company, or for example, a public company, they're not going to list every shareholder in their company who receives a dividend. Uh, they're not going to go to that detail. Yes, there'll be a a dividend transaction statement, but uh, not uh, it won't be in their minutes. So, those two documents obviously work together uh, in that the overall declaration minute will, uh, will be the aggregate of all of the uh, div- dividend distribution statements.
1: Yes, very good point. There might be, yeah, for, for large ASX listed companies, there are 100,000 distribution statement, but only one minute.
0: That's right. So then obviously the next step is is making payment and, and issuing the dividend distribution statement uh, to the shareholder.
1: That doesn't need to happen at the same time. In a, in, a large com- in a publicly listed company, it must happen on the same day. But in a, in a small company, there can be a 4 months gap between the two, correct? You can pay and then hand out the distribution statement four months later.
0: Yes, yeah, so they need to be issued within, within that four-month period. Uh, to the shareholder, obviously that helps them work out their own tax affairs, and, and that is obviously the purpose behind it. So then, the final step is obviously payment, uh, and a matter that often comes up is: can we simply do it by journal entry, where where perhaps there's a Division Seven A loan repayment occurring, and journal entries have been the subject of a lot of talk over the years, and a lot of uh, there's been a few recent cases involving journal entries oh Um, really yeah uh,
1: journal entries of dividends
0: not in relation to dividends but in relation to trust distribution yeah what is the nature of a, a, a journal entry and is it payment and the short answer is no it's not payment it is a journal entry is merely the recording of a transaction and unfortunately a lot of accountants do make journal entries because it is a simple way and it does get treated as payment all too often. There was a, a case recently, and a, the name escapes me at the moment, it was about whether certain journal entries uh, were sufficient uh, to make uh, a person presently entitled to a trust was asset.
1: That, was that Bamford?
0: No. Okay. Um, it
1: Something was, more recent.
0: Yeah, it was only in the last year. And the upshot of it was there was a lot more to it and there was um, some suggestions of untruthfulness. Uh, But the upshot was that journal entries are just a record of the transaction, so they they can't ever be payment. Now, they might be the recording of an offset, you know, that there is some agreement between a shareholder who might have a Division 7A loan and that there is an agreement that the, the repayment for that year will be offset against the dividend and that, that, that happens every year uh, for lots of people around the country. But the journal entry is not the payment, it's merely the recording of it. So we'll be involved with a client who might be under audit and they've said, well, we've done journal entries to do this. And you say, well, behind that journal entry has to be either an agreement to offset, and I'm not suggesting everyone has to have a... A written form agreement although that's best practice but there has to be some form of agreement between the company and that shareholder to to offset the dividend payment against the loan repayment that they need to make. So uh, journal entries I think uh, are all too easy for people to just record a journal entry and say oh, well, that's done but a little bit more care um, around that should be taken just because if you do get audited it will be harder to explain a journal entry with no other documentation to say, well, we're going to offset this dividend against against that repayment. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, a little bit more substance uh, is important, I think, rather than just merely doing a journal entry.
1: Does a director resolution always have to be in writing?
0: Look, it should be, but it doesn't. It doesn't technically have to be, but there is a section in the Corporations Act which says that if there is a resolution made by directors, it needs to be minuted in the minute book within one month of the resolution. And, again, that's probably one that very often gets overlooked and minute books probably for a lot of private companies are non-existent. However, that's why it actually is really important to record your resolutions in writing for, for those really important items such as paying a dividend.
1: And the minute book is another word for company register, correct?
0: Well, no, it's it's more than that. I mean, the company register will contain the minute book, if, if that, yeah, that I think that's the better way to describe it. It is a separate uh, book. It's a record of your meetings as a company and as a board of directors, and it will record all of those resolutions. So oftentimes the uh, minute book will will sit in the company register. You might just have a, a section at the back, but it 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 is in theory kind of a separate item to the uh, to the company register that needs to be uh, kept by the directors.
1: Oh, I see. Okay, so the company register includes the ASIC reviews, for example, any dealings with ASIC, but then it also includes the minute book that then includes all the minutes or the resolutions.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Okay, good. So it needs a minute book. And a minute book is basically just, I I assume a folder where you print out all minutes properly signed and dated, and then you just fold them and probably have a running sheet at the start where you just note every minute you filed.
0: Yeah, that, that would be a great way to organize your minute book.
1: And nowadays you probably can have it online and just in an online folder in Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever you use. You just save all your signed minutes in PDF form in that folder and then have a running sheet like an Excel spreadsheet or similar where you just note all the minutes you find, correct?
0: Yeah, I I think that's probably okay, although um, oftentimes you do get over, you do get into arguments at times as to whether it's the right, it's actually the minute record because it's merely a copy on a computer. I wish we could get past that, but unfortunately those arguments still come up from time to time, so Makes sense to keep. You've, most companies will have a physical register. Oftentimes, they might not be with the company, but they might be in the accountant's office. Makes sense to to keep a, a hard copy folder until we get to a point where you know we're completely online, or at least we completely accept all online documents as as the original. Um, it's probably worthwhile keeping those printed those printed versions still. Does the
1: minute or the resolution actually? Represent the declaration, or is it more that the minute or the resolution is just the decision to declare dividend, but then you need another document to actually declare the dividend, or am I splitting hairs now?
0: Maybe a little bit, but um, oftentimes, if you were, I guess, a minute is is supposed to be, I guess, a record of what happened at the meeting, and what happened at the meeting is the declaration of a dividend. Now, oftentimes. You might have an actual document that is titled resolution of directors to, you know, to declare a dividend, for example. You might just keep those two documents together. If all you had was a a minute of the meeting and in that minute it said we resolved to declare, you know, declare a dividend of X dollars fully franked, uh, that would be sufficient.
1: I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's actually in the meeting that the dividend is declared and then the minute or the resolution then just records that Yes. Agenda point of the meeting.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Another question I had, I think you already indirectly answered, and the question was, does the director resolution or the minute Does it need to list everything that is then later stated in the distribution statement? And I think the answer is no, because you already alluded to the fact that in the uh, declaration, you can just say, for example, fully franked, whereas the distribution statement should list the actual franking credit that is allocated to this shareholder.
0: In all honesty, the resolution or the minute could contain all of that information if you really wanted to.
1: You're right. When when you just have one shareholder, then of course the resolution or minute could list every franking credit because you just have one shareholder. Sure. But if you have thousand shareholders, then of course it becomes completely impractical to have the minute list every franking credit for every shareholder.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's a, just take a common sense approach. If if they if the company wants to record that information, then then it can do it. There's nothing to stop it from doing it. Uh, if it doesn't want to get into that level of detail in its resolution, then it would simply record the or the, well, the declaration of the whole dividend uh, to the class of shareholders.
1: Do you need to list the number of shares in the distribution statement?
0: Yes, that is uh, one of the elements of the distribution statement.
1: Yes, you have to list the number of shares the dividend per share, and then the franking credits?
0: So there is a section in, it's in the 1997 Tax Act, uh, and it says that you need to identify in the distribution statement the entity that's making the distribution, so the company, uh, the date of the distribution, the amount of the distribution, the amount of the franking credits, the franking percentage Uh, the amount of any withholding tax that has been deducted and include any other information required in an approved form. So it doesn't specifically say how many shares you own, but every distribution statement I've ever seen has had the number of shares that you own on, on the statement.
1: Just to show how you got to all those numbers.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably the purpose behind it because then it can, I guess, correlate to how much dividend and what franking credits you you receive. Yes. Probably more a function of Ah. the computers um, working out how much the overall dividend might be and then what the shareholders receive from that.
1: Preference shares usually don't receive a dividend, correct?
0: Depends on the rules. Preference shares are are, are, are a very broad term. Often they might mean that that they receive a preference dividend.
1: So even so, more. So they might not receive any dividend or they might receive a higher dividend. It really depends on it, the setup.
0: Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, often preference dividend uh, is used to describe a very broad category where, you know, it may include people who get a preference and may not. So just, to, again, it comes back to reading that constitution as to what are the rights attaching to that to that share.
1: And so in your resolution, of course, in your, in your minutes and then later in your distribution statement, of course, you need to be very clear which class of shares is receiving what dividend with what yep. franking, franking percentage.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: And you can issue a dividend to one class and not to another class. You can also frank the dividends differently, correct? You could not frank a dividend to a preference share Whereas you could frank the dividends to a ordinary share or do we then have the um, dividend benchmarking rules coming in?
0: No, I think you can frank them in that way. I think the dividend benchmarking rules require you not to frank to a different level amongst the same class. So So if 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 you're paying on different classes, I think it's acceptable subject to the constitution, obviously. But I, I think it is. I think it is, is permissible.
1: Do you need to list the registered office on the distribution statement?
0: It's not in the list of things you need to, but I think it it, it does. When it says identify the entity making the distribution, that's probably broad enough to say. Well, um, you should list the company name, ACN, and and registered office. If you left off the registered office, you might it might be acceptable, but it, it makes sense to list the registered office on there.
1: And then I saw a distribution statement that said franking percentage, 100%. Yes. That must be an error. I can't see how that can make sense. What did they mean with that?
0: What they're saying there is that the dividend is is franked to the highest amount okay. possible. So if you were going to say
1: frank, So it's 100% of
0: 30%. Yes, that's right. So okay. 100% of their franking, their franking rate, if they were 30%, yeah, it would be 100% of 30%.
1: And now my last question is with respect to the triangular setup you can have where a Division 7A loan recipient is not the shareholder. The last two episodes looked at this triangular setup in detail. And so just one quick question regarding this. How do you document an individual making a capital contribution to a trust. So the dividend is paid to the individual, and now you need to document that the individual contributes the dividend to the trust so that the trust can legally valid make a minimum yearly repayment from this dividend.
0: Yeah, so the way I often describe it is to treat it uh, as if it's, I guess, an accretion to the trust capital, like the settlement sum. So, how you would record the settlement sum. And how do you? Good question. That's uh, one more for the accountants. Uh, I don't always understand the double-sided accounting
1: Ah, I see. Ah, you you just, in the accounting entry, I meant more the documentation.
0: Right. So the individual could simply make a gift of that money to the trust. Um,
1: Do you need to document that or is payment enough?
0: It's probably more in a... A state issue, than a tax issue.
1: Because we're always coming back to this, that the journal entry is not enough, you know, because since no actual cash is flowing in this triangular setup.
0: That's probably where I would give advice that they should use what's called a bearer promissory note. So the company would pay a dividend by issuing and delivering a bearer note to the shareholder. The shareholder makes a gift of that money to the trust. and Through
1: an endorsement.
0: Yep. and delivers the note to the trust and the trust repays, makes the repayment and delivers the note to the company and the company cancels the note.
1: I see. So then it's actually enough to have the shareholder endorsing the promissory note to the trust. That's enough. That's that's enough to constitute payment.
0: Yeah, that's right. And usually our notes we would record that it is a gift. And when I say it's an estate issue, it's if someone were challenging that, that money being paid to the trust, they might say, well, that was actually a loan and therefore it should form part of their estate when the client may have wanted to, it to be a gift, not a loan. Obviously, it may become relevant in an um, insolvency setting as well but I would I would always recommend the use of a bearer note in those circumstances because like we said before journal entries are not payment they are just a record of a transaction so if there's if there's going to be if they don't want to use a bearer note the other way to do it would be to have resolutions and a, a consent document by the individual so a resolution of the company saying we've been advised that uh, by the shareholder that the dividend to be paid to them is to be offset against the loan owed by uh, the loan repayment owed by the XYZ trust, uh, and then have reciprocal minutes by the trustee of the trust to say, well, we've received a gift and, and that gift will be offset against the loan, something like that. It's a bit more clunky, but it can work. Uh, but again, it's, it shouldn't just be done by journal entry.
1: So you have the promissory note, and the promissory note you can basically write yourself, correct? It's just a word document that is then signed by the relevant parties that says signed, sealed, and delivered, and that's basically the endorsement. And so you just have the individual shareholder endorse it to the trust. How do you then note that it is a gift and not a loan? Do you then make a separate document where you say... The endorsement is a gift, not a loan, or how do well, you document
0: that? You could simply write it into the actual endorsement. I deliver this to this trustee as a gift
1: okay. and,
0: and and endorse it that way. That's how we would endorse it. We often will do a statutory declaration saying that that was a gift. By so the basically person.
1: A, statutory, a statutory declaration by the individual shareholder that basically just says I endorse this check to the trust as a gift.
0: Yep. Yeah, we often do that um, as the as the means of recording that gift. Um, so, in terms of the, the bearer note, uh, there are some formalities uh, that need to be in that bearer note to make it effective.
1: Yeah, And these
0: maybe. these are covered in the um, Bills of Exchange Act. Uh, and there's a division in there about bearer bearer promissory notes. Essentially, the short answer is that a bearer note is a unconditional promise to pay a fixed amount at some point in time in the future, uh, provided you, I guess, hit on those parts, uh, the bearer note will be effective.
1: Okay. So it has to be an, it has to be a specific uh, point in time. In it, the can future?
0: Be, it can be on demand. So uh, our on bearer,
1: demand is enough.
0: Yeah. Our bearer notes will often say, you know, on presentation of this note. So if, if this note gets handed to me, I will pay the money.
1: So it basically can just say, sorry, I'm just reading this. So it basically can just say the borrower promises to pay to the lender the principal sum of X without interest payable. The note is repayable within 30 days of the lender providing the borrower with written notice of demand. Yeah, that's basically all, isn't it? It
0: it can. Um, I would probably do it differently to that. That's probably more in a lender sense because I think you use the word lender there. Yes. I would say in, in our scenario company or XYZ Proprietary Limited promises to pay to the bearer of this note the sum of $1 million on presentation and that that would be the the issue of the note Uh, and then it would be delivered to the shareholder and that delivery would say something like uh, delivered to Paul McEnroth as payment of a dividend full stop The next receipt would say delivered to XYZ Proprietary Limited as trustee for the McEnroth Family Trust uh, as a gift. And we usually put the date it was received. And then the final one would be received by uh, the original company. I think it was XYZ Proprietary Limited as repayment of principal and interest loan. So I think in closing probably the most important aspects are to understand what the constitution of the company uh, or the replaceable rules what powers they grant to the directors or to the company uh, getting your documentation right and understanding that journal entries aren't payment we need to have something more all all journal entries do is record a transaction I think if you can get those three things right, you can make the payment of a dividend from a company uh, effective and a lot easier for yourself.
1: Welcome back. So to declare a dividend you need to go through five steps. You start with whether the company is even in a position to declare a dividend. So you check whether the company has sufficient net assets and profits, the dividend is fair and reasonable to shareholders and does not prejudice creditors and the company's constitution is met. Then you set the payment terms, how much and when. Then you declare the dividend and you do this in a directors meeting or in a resolution when it's just due. This meeting must take place before the dividend is actually paid out and this timing of course is. Very Very important as discussed in the last two episodes. Then you need to document the dividend and these minutes must be noted in the company's register and then at the end the dividend is paid out or recorded through a journal entry. So these are the five steps to declare a dividend. In the next episode, episode 263, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney will talk about the need to retire when you want to claim the 15-year exemption and Andrew will tell you how to claim the 15 year exemption even if you don't retire. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.